Good morning. It's Wednesday, June 30th. I'm Shamita Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. United Airlines is placing a big bet that air travel can make a real comeback from the pandemic. It announced plans this week to add hundreds more jets and tens of thousands of jobs. If you've tried to fly lately, you likely had to deal with cancellations, delays, and extremely long waits for customer service. And then at the airport, a lot of restaurants and shops are pretty thinly staffed or just closed altogether. This week, in order to make sure there were enough crews to fly, Southwest offered flight attendants double-time pay. Vox looks at why getting back to business is so tough for this industry. Aviation executives are blaming labor shortages. But Vox points out that the companies complaining are the same ones that laid off armies of people. And that happened as airlines took tens of billions of dollars in federal aid. Now they're having trouble getting the workers back. One problem is hiring for jobs that involve air travel. It's just not simple. New hires need time to get security clearances, and they have to have special training in security and hazardous materials. Also, it takes more than pilots and flight attendants to do this business. There are cabin cleaners, baggage handlers, and don't forget security officers. At one point, these workers were employed directly by the airlines. But over the years, these jobs have been outsourced. And working for contractors hasn't always been good for employees. Some got low pay and fewer benefits. So it's not surprising if some of these jobs are proving hard to fill again. All of this means if you're flying this summer, you should probably manage your expectations. Extreme heat is making life very difficult in some parts of the U.S. right now. But did you know, even within the same city, temperatures can vary by several degrees depending on how many trees are in your neighborhood? And lower-income communities and people of color are disproportionately feeling the pain of this week's scorching weather. The Guardian cites Houston as an example of a place that often experiences 100-degree temperatures. Some parts of town have a lot of trees, and others don't. The more lush parts of town are wealthier neighborhoods. They tend to have more parks, green areas, 100-year-old oak trees, just more shade. Poorer communities in Houston have more strip malls, more concrete, which produce and retain heat. This makeup, it's by design. The Guardian points to the fact that in the 1930s, banks routinely engaged in redlining. That practice identified communities where black people lived and made it nearly impossible for them to get loans. We're still seeing the effects of this racism in these neighborhoods, including the lack of trees. It has a pronounced impact on heat. The Guardian points to data that says, nationally, redlined communities are about five degrees warmer than non-redlined areas. One reason why is that in many cities, there are no laws guaranteeing trees. In wealthier neighborhoods, residents have money to pay for more trees. But low-income neighborhoods have been historically denied access to capital. So they haven't been able to invest in landscaping. There's a lot of data out there that shows how pronounced this problem is. Bloomberg City Lab looks at one project called the Tree Equity Score Map, It shows, on average, communities of color have 33% fewer trees. And City Lab says 
here's an opportunity. Massive tree planting projects could fix this problem. It could create jobs and suck carbon out of the atmosphere at the same time. The New Yorker is shedding light on a piece of American history that was almost lost forever. In the 1920s, Eve Adams wrote and published a book called Lesbian Love. She chronicled the romantic lives of real women she met, and this might have been the very first ethnography of lesbians in America. She might have even been the first person in American literature to use the word lesbian in this way. The stories of these women and the tragic life of Eve Adams have only recently been brought to light. Eve was born in Poland. She was Jewish. She immigrated to the U.S. in 1912 and fell in with a group of activists, intellectuals, and artists in New York. She embraced her sexuality as part of a community that we would now call LGBTQ. Later, she drew the attention of a government agency that was monitoring activists, labor organizers, and war dissenters. She also founded a tea room in New York. It was popular with the gay and lesbian community of her day. And after her book circulated, she was arrested. She was charged with disorderly conduct, but she was essentially on trial for living as a lesbian and writing about women like her. Eve was convicted. After spending a year and a half in jail, she was deported to Poland. In a letter to a friend, she describes how her everyday worry was for a piece of bread. Things seemed to be looking up for her when she made it to Paris. But when the Nazis occupied France, they captured her. She was murdered at Auschwitz. Over the years, the 150 copies of her book seem to have disappeared, and along with them, memories of her. While researching the LGBTQ community, one historian found references to Eve, and he started digging. He eventually hit the jackpot. A single copy of her book was found in upstate New York. That historian is Jonathan Ned Katz, and he has a new biography out called The Daring Life and Dangerous Times of Eve Adams. Its appendix includes the short book she wrote and, in many ways, died for, Lesbian Love. At one of her deportation hearings, about eight years before she was sent to Auschwitz, Eve Adams told a judge, I never realized that the book was indecent. If I did, I would have never written it. I merely intended to describe these characters with the aim to help them, to show them the truth of their lives. If part of your July 4th tradition involves lighting up fireworks at home, this year could be tough. Right now, the cost of buying fireworks is skyrocketing. And that's if you're lucky enough to find fireworks at all. Some stores are not even sure they have enough product on hand to stay open the whole week. Donna Nuccio manages a store called Pyro City in Missouri. I don't need to tell you what she sells, right? She told NPR, usually there's a drop-off in fireworks sales after the 4th of July, but last year that slowdown didn't happen. People who were locked down wanted to blow stuff up. People were celebrating anything and everything. I had people coming in buying fireworks for Thanksgiving. We had Diwali, we had Christmas, we had New Year's. This summer should have been a booming time for the industry, but instead, fireworks stores are shaking their heads at a dud of a season. The pandemic choked off production in China. And even when firecracker factories lit up again, a lot of products to stock stores for the 4th of July, they still haven't arrived because of shipping delays. 
All of this adds up to empty shelves and high prices for whatever's left. Now, this is good news for places like fire stations and emergency rooms. Fewer amateurs launching rockets means fewer fires and fewer people getting hurt. The National Fire Protection Association says serious fireworks-related injuries rose more than 50 percent last year. This shortage is affecting consumer fireworks, so the big fireworks celebrations will go on this weekend. Since so many public shows were canceled during the lockdowns last year, professionals, they're stocked, locked, and loaded. So rather than scrounge around for pricey little firecrackers, you may want to sit back and enjoy the shows from the pros. They're bigger, better, and free. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And while you're there, check out some of our audio stories. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.